it's in the interest of both the United States and Cuba to have a better relationship. But both sides are so used to being at each other's throats that it's hard to get beyond the animosity and mutual suspicion that have, have been built up over the years. Welcome to the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs, a completely student-run podcast at Johns Hopkins University. My name is Franco Cili, and today I'm joined by my co-host, Fabiana Corsi. The name Castro has defined Cuba for over 60 years, when Fidel Castro and his brother Raul successfully led a communist revolution on the island. Since then, the island nation has been one of the United States' major challenges in Latin America, allying with the Soviet Union during the Cold War and influencing politics in the hemisphere. Almost five years after the death of Fidel Castro, Raul Castro is finally stepping down. Who will replace them? What will happen to Cuba? And how will relations between Cuba and the United States evolve going forward? To answer these questions and more, we're joined today by Dr. William Legrande. William Legrande is a professor of government at American University and a longtime specialist in Latin American politics. He has been a frequent advisor to government and private sector agencies and had previously served on the staffs of the Democratic Party Committee of the U.S. Senate and the Democratic Caucus Task Force on Central America of the U.S. House of Representatives. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Lagrande. My pleasure. So we would like to begin by contextualizing our conversation for our listeners, just to catch them up. With that said, who exactly is Raul Castro? And who was his brother, Fidel Castro? What role did they play in shaping modern Cuba? Well, Raul Castro, of course, was the younger brother of Fidel Castro, who led the revolution in 1950 against Fulgencio Batista's military dictatorship in Cuba. Raul was second in command of the revolutionary movement and became then second in command behind Fidel after the triumph of the revolution in January 1959. And he remained uh, the number two leader of the revolutionary government until Fidel stepped down in 2006. During that period, Raul was minister of the Revolutionary Armed Forces, and that meant that he built the Cuban military really from the ground up, from a ragtag band of guerrillas that overthrew Batista into uh, the largest and most powerful army in Latin America. When Fidel fell ill in 2006 and had to step down, Raul then became president and first secretary of the Communist Party, and he held those positions until just recently. He stepped down as president in 2018, and he stepped down as leader of the Communist Party just this past April at the Party Congress. And what used to be Cuba's relationship with the United States before the Castros, and how did it change after the Castro brothers consolidated their power over the island? Well, you know, the United States has coveted Cuba ever since Thomas Jefferson was president of the United States. Cuba was so close to the United States, it just seemed like a natural acquisition. Uh, U.S. presidents tried on three different occasions to buy Cuba from Spain. Uh, Spain wasn't selling. So finally, the United States took Cuba as a consequence of the Spanish-American War. Cuba was nominally independent after that, but in reality, it was a U.S. protectorate. U.S. investors dominated the Cuban economy, and Washington really dictated Cuban politics. 
if a, a Cuban government was to the disliking of the United States, the United States intervened to throw it out. And to give you an example, in 1933, a moderately nationalist government came to power in Havana, and the United States organized a coup to overthrow it, a coup that was led by Fulgencio Batista. One of the U.S. ambassadors to Cuba, Ambassador Earl Smith, once said that the U.S. ambassador is the second most powerful person in Cuba and sometimes not second. Well, as you can imagine, Cuban nationalists really hated this dominance by the United States. And one of the reasons Fidel Castro was such a successful politician was because he knew how to appeal to that nationalism. And he equated the revolution, nationalism, and socialism all as one bundle, as one thing. And that was one of the reasons that he was able to build popular support on the island, both for his government and for the socialist direction that he took things. I would say one of Castro's main goals for the revolution was to free Cuba from that dominance by the United States. And of course, he did it by nationalizing all the U.S. property on the island. And that began the conflict between Cuba and the United States that has lasted ever since. So just to take us over to the Cold War, um, as the United States and the Soviet Union waged a battle of ideologies throughout the world, what role did Cuba play, especially after the Cuban Missile Crisis? And more specifically, how did it project power and what was its relationship with the Soviet Union like? So Cuba's relationship with the Soviet Union was one of an uneasy partnership, It was the way I would put it. Cuba needed the Soviet Union economic assistance in order to survive in the face of the U.S. economic embargo, especially in the 1960s, because the Cuban economy had been completely dependent on the United States before 1959. And when the United States imposed its embargo on Cuba, uh, it really was a declaration of economic war. Uh, Nikita Khrushchev, who led the Soviet Union in those days, was wise enough to understand that he could step in and fill the vacuum the United States had left by offering Cuba economic aid. But the relationship was a rocky one because Cuba in the 1960s and the 1970s was far more radical than the Soviet Union was. Uh, Cuba was supporting revolutionary movements all across Latin America. In the 1970s, Cuba sent combat troops to Africa, first to Angola and then to Ethiopia. And it upset the Soviet Union's efforts to improve uh, detente with the United States. So there was a real stress and strain in that relationship all along. When George H.W. Bush became president of the United States and the Cold War was ending, he lobbied Mikhail uh, Gorbachev to halt Soviet aid to Cuba and uh, Gorbachev said, well, you know, if you have a problem with Cuba, you need to take it up with the Cubans, not with us. And Bush refused to do that and insisted that the Soviets just tell the Cubans how to behave. And Gorbachev's response was, nobody tells Fidel Castro how to behave. Of course, this partnership that Cuba had with the Soviet Union really put Cuba right at the fulcrum of the Cold War. And that was a major concern of U.S. policymakers right up until the Soviet Union collapsed. I think it's fair to say that one of the reasons that Cuba was 
uh, such an obsession with U.S. policymakers was because of its partnership with the Soviet Union, combined with that historic desire of the United States to see Cuba as really ours. You know, you don't hear a whole lot about friction between Cuba and the Soviet Union. That's very interesting. But let's take things to that collapse. So in 1991, the Soviet Union collapses. How has Cuba managed since and how did it adapt its foreign policy uh, despite lacking that significant foreign support? Well, the collapse of the Soviet Union was a devastating blow to the Cuban economy. Uh, Cuba had really been doing almost 85% of its trade with Eastern European communist regimes and the Soviet Union. So when those regimes collapsed, Cuba had to reorient its trade relations toward the West. Uh, Cuba also lost about $3.5 billion of economic assistance that it was getting annually from the Soviet Union. So Cuba shifted its trade patterns to Western Europe and China primarily, and eventually, after a few years, uh, it began to resume its trade with Russia. For a while, Cuba had a large part of its trade with Venezuela, and that was really in the first decade of the 21st century. Cuba traded medical services, sending doctors and other medical personnel to Venezuela in exchange for cheap oil. Uh, that's a lot less significant today because of the collapse of the Venezuelan petroleum industry. So uh, the amount of oil that Cuba gets from Venezuela is still important to the Cuban economy, but it's only about half of what it was uh, just a few years ago. Today, Cuba has a pretty well diversified set of trade relations, uh, so it's less vulnerable to the loss of any one partner in particular, but it has never found a patron quite like the Soviet Union uh, to, to boost its economy. Uh, and that's one of Cuba's big problems today. It's uh, Cuba's need to really reform its own economy so that it can be self-sustaining. So as you highlighted, um, after Hugo Chavez came to power in Venezuela in 98, uh, Cuba's influence in Latin American politics did, again, expand dramatically. So other than the medical services that you mentioned, what other diplomatic tools did the island nation use to exert so much power over the politics of the Latin American countries? And do you think it would have been able to do that without Chavez in power? Well, I think Cuba's influence in Latin America in uh, the first decade of the 21st century was not really because of Venezuela, but it was because almost every government in Latin America in those years was a government of the left. Now, there was a lot of variation, of course. They were not all the same by any means. They ranged from the sort of sedate social democracy of Michel Bachelet's Chile on one end of the spectrum to Hugo Chavez's left-wing populism in Venezuela on the other end. But all of those left governments had very good relations with Havana. And Cuba uh, fostered those good relations, uh, sometimes through soft power, sending uh, medical missions to those countries. Uh, in the Venezuelan case, because it was an oil-producing country and wealthy, uh, they paid Cuba for those medical missions. But a number of the medical missions that Cuba sent around the hemisphere and, and really around the world, uh, it sent gratis to countries that didn't have the capacity to pay. And so Cuba was able to uh, build up a lot of goodwill through that sort of thing. Uh, 
I will say that Cuba's relations with Latin America today are not as good as they were a decade ago. And that's not because Cuba has changed, but rather because Latin America has. Uh, in a lot of countries, the political pendulum has swung back to the right, and you have a lot more conservative governments in the hemisphere than you had uh, a decade ago. And that, of course, brings us back to the present. And after almost after over 60 years in a position of power, Raul Castro is stepping down from his position as the general secretary of the Communist Party of Cuba. So what exactly does that mean? And what was the reasoning behind his decision? Was it just that he is old and he wants to enjoy the last few years that he has? Or was there something else behind it? What's important to recognize that this succession uh, is not just about Raul Castro. Uh, what we're seeing is a very carefully choreographed transition from the older generation uh, that founded the revolutionary regime after fighting in the revolutionary movement to a generation of leaders born after 1959. Uh, Raul Castro is very sensitive to the fact that uh, the old historic leadership has held on through, what, six decades now. Uh, they are quite old, most of them, almost all of them. Um, and he recognized the need to have a well-structured transition to a new set of leaders before they were all, uh, before all the historic leaders were gone. So at the party Congress that was held just this last April, All the old guard who founded the revolutionary government retired. Um, now, I don't think Raul is going to stay involved in day-to-day -day politics here, but he does have real prestige among Cuba's political elite. And so he will be influential, particularly in the event of any serious crisis that might arise. When uh, Diaz-Canel took over as first secretary of the party, Uh, he said that he intended to consult with Raul Castro on all important matters. I think Raul will have the kind of role that Deng Xiaoping had in China after he retired. He will be the, uh, the gray eminence, if you will, that people will turn to in moments of crisis. So who is Miguel Díaz-Canel? Why was he chosen to lead? And is there any indication that he has his own policy platform or will it just be business as usual? Well, Díaz-Canel worked his way up through the Cuban Communist Party. So he's an institutional man, if you will. First, he worked in a couple of different provinces. 14 years he spent as first secretary of the party in the provinces. Then he came to Havana and held a variety of different positions in the national government. He was picked because he's in basic agreement with Raul Castro's policies, most especially the major economic reform program that Raul launched in 2011. So when Diaz-Canel took over, uh, as president back in 2018, uh, he launched his social media account with the hashtag Somos Continuidad, we are continuity. Uh, but that's a way of, on the one hand, I think assuring conservatives in the political elite that he is not going to be a Gorbachev, that he's going to continue on with the policies that have been in place. And I think it's also to some extent 
a reassurance to the general public, which wants to see change rather than continuity, but also wants to see stability. I think Diaz Canal, representing a new generation, will inevitably see things differently than the older generation did. Uh, and so as problems arise going forward, the new generation of leaders is going to have a different view of how to cope with those. That may bring them into some conflict with, uh, with the older generation, but uh, the torch has really been passed to them. So the Cuba's problems, of which there are many, are now theirs. And you briefly touched on it, but do we know anything more about Cuban public opinion surrounding the Escanel as of now? No, we really haven't had any public opinion polls in Cuba since he's taken over. Um, the public opinion polls that have been done, independent polls uh, that have been done over the last few years, uh, have essentially told us two things. One, that it is the economy that is the biggest concern of the Cuban people. They see that as the number one problem on the island. And number two, they don't have a lot of faith in the government's ability to solve that problem. So that's a real challenge for, for Diaz-Canel. I, I think his uh, legitimacy, his public support is going to depend upon his performance. That is to say, can he make real progress on the economy, get it going again and improve people's daily life? If he can do that, I think he'll have significant public support. And if he can't, he'll be in trouble. That is actually a great segue to the next question that we had for you, Dr. Leo Grande, which was, what domestic challenges is Cuba facing moving forward? You mentioned that there is a major economic reform program that might be coming soon. But is there anything else? And is Miguel Díaz-Canel prepared to handle these challenges or are they too intractable for the current system to, to resolve? As I said, Cuba's main problem today is its economy. The economy is in really bad shape due to two external shocks. The Trump administration's sanctions, especially the cutoff of remittances to Cuba, which were running at a rate of about $3 billion annually. And then second, uh, the COVID pandemic closed the tourist industry, which was generating revenue of about $2 billion annually. The result of that was that gross domestic product in Cuba declined by 11% last year. And today there are shortages of all basic goods, uh, most especially food. Now, the economy will probably begin to recover over the next 12 months as the pandemic subsides, the tourist industry will be revived, and the new Biden administration is likely to remove some of Trump's sanctions. But in the longer term, economic development in Cuba is really gonna, going to depend on the success of the economic reform program. This is a program that actually began in 2011. It was Raul Castro's program, but it's made very slow progress until recently. Uh, and the reason is that there has been some bureaucratic resistance to moving toward more of a market-style socialism. Uh, along the lines of China and Vietnam. That's not a big surprise. Bureaucrats who have certain 
uh, prerogatives as a result of their political authority, don't want to give that up and have the market take over making decisions uh, because it will hurt their positions. But uh, making progress in getting the economy to be more efficient is absolutely essential to Cuba's future. Uh, estimates are that a significant number of Cuba's state enterprises actually lose money and the government has to subsidize them to keep them going. Uh, that's not a formula for long-term development. So the number one challenge is the economy, recovery in the short term from the immediate crisis, but more importantly, uh, moving ahead on the reform program in order to make the economy sustainable in the long run. So beyond what you've already mentioned in terms of the Biden administration reversing some of the Trump administration's frostier relations with Cuba, uh, what other new developments can we expect from the Biden administration moving forward in U.S.-Cuba relations? Well, the Biden administration has done nothing at all so far about Cuba. And when asked about it, uh, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki has said Cuba is not a priority. I think, you know, the best... Um, indicator we have is what the then Vice President Biden said during the campaign. Uh, during the campaign, he promised to reverse Trump's sanctions that hurt Cuban families, and presumably that means restoring remittances. He promised to restore travel to Cuba on the grounds that Americans, especially Cuban Americans, are the best ambassadors of freedom and democracy. So I presume that that means he will resume uh, the people-to-people -people travel category that Donald Trump abolished, which is the travel category under which most people in the United States travel to Cuba. And then third, Biden promised to resume a diplomatic dialogue with the Cuban government. And I think that means a couple of things. First, that we are likely to see a restaffing of the U.S. Embassy, which has been operating on a skeletal staff since 2017, uh, reopening the consular section of the embassy to give Cubans uh, immigrant visas and non-immigrant visas to restore uh, re family reunification program that was in place but was suspended by Trump. And then I think it also means a resumption of some of the diplomatic dialogues between the two governments that were underway at the end of the Obama administration. There were 17 different diplomatic dialogues underway talking about cooperation on issues of mutual interest, from environmental protection to health to uh, counter-narcotics and law enforcement. Um, I don't think you're going to see President Biden returned to Obama's full-scale proactive policy of engagement. And that's really more for political reasons than for policy reasons. Uh, the Democrats really suffered a debacle in South Florida in the 2020 election. They lost two House of Representatives seats that they thought were safe seats. And Cuban-American voters swung back toward Republicans after a number of years of gradually moving toward the center and, and voting more for Democrats. So there is a real fear in the White House about the 2022 midterm elections and the 
how close that could be in the House of Representatives and the need to try to win back what ought to be Democratic seats in South Florida. Uh, I will say that I think it's in the interest of both the United States and Cuba to have a better relationship. Um, but, you know, both sides are so used to being at each other's throats that it's hard to get beyond the animosity and mutual suspicion that have have been built up over the years. And so in order for Biden to be able to make good on some of these campaign promises, what remaining challenges do the U.S. and Cuba need to address in order to proceed with some of these very lofty ideas? And what are some things that our listeners should be on the lookout for in the next couple of months and years? Well, the thing to be on the lookout for is what will President Biden actually do about Cuba? Uh, Just how much of a re-engagement will there be? Uh, some of the things that he's talked about are really unilateral things, not things that need to be negotiated with Cuba, like lifting the sanctions on families, restoring travel. Uh, That is all uh, unilateral action by the government of the United States. But just how deeply will he be willing to re-engage in dialogue with Cuba to try to solve some uh, some of the issues that divide the two countries? Uh, but also to make progress on some of the issues that really are issues of mutual interest. Uh, I think we'll just have to wait and see. Uh, Right now, there is a debate going on inside the administration on just how forward-leaning the president ought to be on the issue of Cuba. Uh, In terms of challenges, I think President Obama managed to build a measure of trust between uh, Uh, his administration and Raul Castro's administration in Cuba. Uh, Donald Trump destroyed that trust and and really empowered uh, conservatives in the United States to believe that uh, it was possible to sustain a policy of animosity against Cuba over the long haul and empowered conservatives in Havana who were skeptical about whether the United States was really interested in a better relationship with Havana. So to make any real progress in the longer term, uh, it's going to take time to rebuild uh, that trust. It's not something that can be done overnight, and it's not something uh, that words alone can do. It will have to be a matter of actions. I'm hopeful that the Biden administration will take the first steps toward that, because after all, it was the United States under the Trump administration that uh, blew up the relationship that President Obama had built. But, you know, in the long run, we are two countries only 90 miles apart, and we have to learn to live together because neither of us can move away. Well, Dr. Logrande, thank you very much for joining us today on the podcast. We really appreciate your insights into Cuba and what its future holds. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. We would like to say thank you to the International Studies Program at Johns Hopkins University and the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University for making this episode possible. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Hit follow on Spotify, subscribe on iTunes, and leave a rating. We'll see you next time.